Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgery Journal Club podcast for the month of September. I'm your host, Rimmel Dasani, and today we're going to discuss the article entitled Middle Meningeal Artery Embolization versus Conventional Treatment of Chronic Subdural Hematoma. We have an exciting panel of speakers today, and at this time, I would like to ask the panelists to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Akil Pabani. I'm a senior neuroendovascular fellow at Emory University Hospital in Grady Health System. Uh, excited to be here. Thanks for having me over. I'm Dr. Ajit Thomas at uh, Bethesda Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, and I'm an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. I'm Jonathan Grossberg. I'm an associate professor and associate program director of neurosurgery at uh, Emory. And I specialize in cerebrovascular. Um, and uh, was one of the commenters on uh, Dr. Thomas's uh, excellent paper. Thank you to all the panelists for joining in. I would like to request Dr. Thomas to now provide a brief summary of this paper. Uh, we've been increasingly using middle meningeal artery embolization for treatment of chronic subdural hematomas. And um, small series have shown this to be a very promising treatment in terms of preventing recurrences and also resolution of the chronic subdural hematomas. Uh, there, was there has never been a head-to-head -head comparison between MMA embolization versus surgery. And uh, we thought that it may be best to get this data through a propensity-matched analysis. So what we did was, uh, we took 357 conventionally treated chronic subdural hematomas from a different epoch uh, for a time duration 2006 to 2016. And then patients who had been treated just with MMA embolization, uh, sorry, treated with MMA embolization from 2018 to 2019. And from both these groups, we were able to find 25 patients uh, after balancing with propensity score matching. And we looked at these 25 pairs uh, to see what the outcomes were. And we did not find any significant difference in complications, clinical improvement, chronic subdural hematoma recurrence, overall re-intervention rates, and modified ranking scale on last follow-up. There was slight uh, improvement in the radiographic improvement in this open surgery cohort. But again, they had a longer duration of follow-up. And there was a trend towards increased re-intervention rates in the open surgical arm. So what this paper demonstrates is at least the non-inferiority of the middle meningeal artery embolization technique in comparison to open cranial surgeries. Thank you uh, for that summary uh, of the paper, Dr. Thomas. Uh, I'd like to request uh, Dr. Grossberg to lead the discussion. Thanks so much, Dr. Thomas. Um, you know, what I found very interesting about this paper was the propensity analysis and the comparison because a lot of people have reported their individual case series but um, there hasn't been one where people have actually done really good matching here. Um, my first question for you is, um, has, how has these, have these results kind of changed your practice? Are you guys still embolizing everyone with PVA? Have you started 
embolizing more people, less people, et cetera. So, you know, we even prior to this paper coming out, we have been uh, fairly aggressive with middle meningeal artery embolization because we have had very good results with, uh, with that technique. And prior to all this, we had done an analysis of our open cranial procedures, both boreholes and craniotomy. And we found that the recurrence rate was close to 20%. So with the middle meningeal artery embolization, at least in our hospital, we were able to bring it down to 4%. And in addition, a lot of patients who are elderly in the 80s or 90s, I think it's a great procedure. You would intuitively think that accessing the uh, internal and the external cord artery in these patients would be difficult. But uh, what we have found is that it is uh, definitely feasible and the technical failure rates is very low. And we've been very pleased with the outcome. So I think at this point we have done about 200 uh, middle meningeal artery embolization over a three year period. And are you still using PVA? Our center is taking part in one of the liquid embolic trials. Um, even though we had been a PVA center before that? So we have specifically used uh, embospheres uh, instead of PVAs, and I think PVA is similar. I think the what we have done traditionally here is we have used um, embol, I mean, we have used part, uh, particulate embolic material and followed by coiling of the main middle meningeal artery trunk. Now it varies from patient to patient depending on the anastomosis and their uh, supply to the ophthalmic artery. So what we do first is we, we inject the internal cord artery and make sure that the ophthalmic artery is supplying the retina. So we look for a retinal blush. And then after that, we go into the external cord artery and inject the, um, the maxillary artery. And we make sure that there are no anastomosis, uh, a large anastomosis from the middle meningeal to the ophthalmic artery. Now, after this, the middle meningeal artery is selectively catheterized. And again, we do a run to look for uh, anastomosis. The problem is sometimes, despite all this, there is an anastomosis that can open up as you embolize the distal portion. So we have to be very careful with that. And in some instances, we have just embolized the, um, the posterior division and not the anterior division, and then taken down the middle meningeal artery with coils. So, you know, we have, we have varied our practice. We have used onyx rarely, I'm sorry, uh, liquid embolic material rarely. Uh, I think there is a definite role for it. And I think the big question in my mind is, can we avoid uh, the, the vision problems or facial nerve palsies with uh, with the liquid embolics. And, um, you know, you've been talking about adjunctive embolization. Have your, has your center also been doing uh, primary embolization for patients with less symptoms? Um, we, have, we have used it uh, in, as primary modality of treatment. So the vast majority of patients we treat are not, uh, the middle meningeal artery embolization is not an adjunct. It is a primary form of treatment. Uh, I would say, uh, maybe 20% of the time uh, we do surgery followed by embolization. And the question is, so, you know, you know, one would think that if you had a large chronic subdural hematoma with significant midline shift, um, you would have to do surgery. 
but I think you'd have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. If there is a profound neurological deficit or the patient has an altered sensorium, obviously surgery is very important to decompress uh, the brain quickly. But very often you find the elderly patient is able to tolerate a large chronic subdural hematoma with significant midline shift and is reasonably intact. I think those patients don't actually need surgery. Um, what I found is that they almost, though these, the, the CT scan findings lag the clinical improvement, they seem to improve very quickly over a period of one to two weeks. Uh, and just out of my own question, are you treating the elderly patients with uh, general anesthesia or are you doing uh, conscious sedation? We generally use conscious sedation. Very rarely uh, we, we do general anesthesia. Earlier we started with general anesthesia and then we had uh, anesthesia involved with, uh, uh, with moderate sedation. And now we just do moderate sedation with, uh, with the nurses in the INR suite. Now, uh, because it's the, what I found is that um, if you use onyx or sorry, liquid embolics, it's a little more painful. And so sometimes you have to use general anesthesia. We've, our experience has been the opposite. We started off doing them all awake and uh, we had issues with, you know, people not holding very still. And then some of those difficult twists you'll sometimes see around frame and sposum. And we've now more or less switched to mostly general. Um, but um, I'm, Dr. Bavani, do you have any questions um, as the moderator? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Grosberg. I think those are like excellent questions. Um, you know, as a, as a senior fellow, I actually enjoy these procedures personally a lot, um, primarily because, you know, I think this is sort of one of those foundation cases where we build our foundation for microcatheter, microwire work. So, so um, obviously they do good. Um, you know, there's, these are good um, cases where, you know, there's significant sense of gratification. Um, maybe not as much as, you know, stroke thrombectomies, but, but pretty much uh, uh, follow close behind. So thank you, Dr. Thomas, for this excellent article and for your input. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you know that Dr. Grosberg and I come from the same <laughs> institution. So our experience is pretty much the same since I've, I've been here, we've pretty much done all these cases under general anesthesia. And you know, it's, it, may, it makes it for a much smoother uh, operation overall, but obviously it does add time and maybe a small amount of risk uh, related to general anesthesia. Um, so in regards to um, your paper, I mean, uh, you know, this is, this is a great uh, matching analysis. Um, but, you know, I mean, the topic of subdural has been studied um, uh, from all directions um, because obviously it's a, it's a problem that most neurosurgeons out in the community as well deal with. Um, but one of the things that have been time and again looked into is the usage of drains uh, with chronic subdural hematomas and, you know, the, uh, the improvement of recurrence rates with placement of drains. And then, you know, there are subdural drains and there are subgaleal drains and combination of uh, of both of them. And it seems like some of your patients <clears throat> in both groups ended up getting uh, drains, uh, I think 60% in one group and 70% in the other. Uh, were you able to look at uh, if, if placement of drains could have possibly impacted uh, the overall um, radiological improvements of chronic subdural hematomas and, and eventual outcomes? So to start with, um... You know, the, when you say 70% of the cases in MMA arm had drains, one has to remember that only seven patients or 28% had surgical treatment in that arm. 
So it's not a total of 70%, it's a total of 70% of that 28%. So, Correct. Uh, so it's only a very small fraction that had um, a drain. We have looked at this issue with, in, our, in a prior paper, which we had published in the Journal of Neurosurgery in 2018, where we had looked at, um, I'm trying to remember, 325 chronic subdural hematomas. And we looked at whether the drains had reduced the reoperation rates. What we found is that in the borehole group, uh, the reoperation rate without drains was 19.5%, and with the drain was 15%. So there was really no uh, statistical difference uh, based on that. And with the craniotomy, it, it seemed to have some benefit because uh, the crany patients had 173 without drain, and with drain, we were able to drop it to 9% or 10%, uh, but not, again, substantially different uh, statistically. So, so the, though I think there are papers that do say that drains help, I think when you talk about boreholes, uh, I'm not sure that the, the drains are that helpful. The second concern I have with borehole and putting the drain in is there is a risk of either the drain traversing the brain parenchyma, also going into compartments which were not um, accessed by the borehole and causing bleeding. And we have generally found that if you have a borehole and you do a middle meningeal artery embolization, the reoperation rate is pretty close to zero. And I don't know if you've looked at the band paper from North Korea where they did boreholes, cranies, and then middle meningeal artery embolization. The recurrence rate was exceedingly low. It may have been like one out of 172 or one out of 72, I can't remember, but it's very, very low. So I don't think that the drain makes as much a difference uh, in these patients. I think, I mean, I guess, you know, as you said, I mean, the data is out there. Uh, there are several papers that have variable evidence. Um, I'm sure different, if you take 10 neurosurgeons, they'll have 11 opinions about whether to place a drain or not. So I guess that's, um, the verdict is still still out on that. Uh, generally at Emory, our, uh, our uh, inclination is to place a drain if it's a large subdural hematoma, especially if there are membranes, and then obviously um, follow it up with a middle meningeal artery embolization. Um, in your experience, and I think sort of Dr. Grosbeck sort of alluded to that, in your experience, do you, do you, um, I'm sure you definitely follow up or perform MM embolizations in patients who undergo burhole treatments, but how aggressive you are in patients who have a um, potentially a larger, either a mini or a larger craniotomy, uh, because um, obviously in those cases, the distal branches are, are sacrificed, or do you have a way around it where you're able to preserve those branches and still so, so whenever we do a craniotomy, we are more likely to place a drain. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think there is still a role for middle meningeal artery embolization for two reasons. One is the, the posterior branch is often, often still patent and you can embolize through that. And there are rich anastomotic connections. And the anterior branch uh, also, there, there are still some proximal branches that supply the dura. And you can take down the middle meningeal artery with, uh, with coils. So though the, the numbers may not be that large, we have generally found them to be beneficial. And then when you speak of coils, um, 
my uh, understanding was, you know, you definitely want to get distal penetration with embospheres or particles or whatever your choice modality is. Do you think uh, placement of proximal coils in the proximal trunk of MME uh, does anything, if at all, uh, to so reduce We have only used that in select cases where there is a anastomosis with the ophthalmic artery that we are worried about embolizing. And there are a fairly small series. And I think we have seen good results, but I don't want to commit because we haven't really analyzed it properly yet. Um, you would intuitively think that particles or liquid embolic material that are able to penetrate the membranes are likely to um, uh, help this chronic subdural hematoma resolve quicker. Uh, I think uh, it would be interesting to see that uh, when we have enough data, whether because if proximal coil embolization works, then I think uh, you can take down the morbidity of this procedure even lower. Right, yeah. Um, and I, and you, you sort of mentioned that the, the chances of technical failure in this case are low, other than, you know, obviously seeing um, rich anastomotic or big anastomotic connections between the external circulation and the ophthalmic artery or the retinal blush and the external circulation. Um, what other um, technical um, issues do you foresee which will, you know, which will lead you to abort the procedure? Uh, or you found that, you know, you might have found a way out where you can make a technically challenging procedure more amenable to successful embolization? So one of the things that Dr. Grossberg alluded to was earlier about the patients moving, right? So in the elderly patient who is a little confused, it's sometimes hard to do these procedures. Um, and so then you may have to consider intubation. And then once you're intubated, then the big question is, are you able to do both sides because you have to check the vision after you know, doing uh, each side. And so one way we have tried to get out of that is by looking for a retinal blush after doing the side uh, of interest and making sure that you, you see a retinal blush on the common injection post-procedure before we move on to the other side. Sure. Um, it is also useful to get a CTA of the neck in addition to the head, because you can get a sense of, is there a carotid stenosis, how torturous is the patient? And the one thing we have done is we have generally not used bigger catheters. Most of our procedures are done with a five French Simmons catheter, which we're able to get into the maxillary artery. And then we just go up with an SL10 microcatheter from there into the middle meningeal artery. Yeah, I think our, our practice is also fairly similar. Um, one of the things we have started doing now is in some cases where we find that the, the overall caliber of the um, either the IMAX or the middle meningeal is small, we will inject either verapamil or milrinone uh, over a few minutes. And I think that helps tremendously to increase the caliber and then sort of take the particles distally into the membranes. And I think I mean, again, we don't have any data. It's probably something worth looking at, but I think we feel that every time we use it, the um, I think we have a you know a technical success uh, in those cases. So, from my standpoint, I think that's something that I would probably be doing more often in in, uh, in my practice. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a very interesting thing because I think one of the problems we face, even with a five French catheter, as soon as you get into the IMAX is that it goes into spasm because of the wire and the catheter. 
Correct. And so you have to inject uh, verapamil, nitroglycerin, whatever you like, even proximally, before you get into the middle meningeal. Um, the other interesting thing I've also noticed is that a lot of these patients, their headache gets better immediately after you embolize. So, you know, these people have very bad headaches with the chronic subdural. And then post-procedure, uh, a couple of days later, you know, they don't seem to have as much of headache. And I think the Barrow group actually looked at this where they looked at patients who have had a history of headaches even before the chronic subdural hematoma. And um, they found that a lot of the patients, the headache completely uh, resolved. So, you know, the question is, does middle meningeal artery have something to do with headaches? You know, there is a paper actually in Brain, maybe last year from, uh, from Copenhagen, where they've looked at migraineers and, you know, the middle meningeal artery dilates during, uh, during uh, migraine episodes. So it'll be interesting to see whether there's some relationship from the MMA uh, as, a, as, a, as a cause of headache. Yeah, and I guess it will be interesting to see if MMI embolization also becomes standard of care for migraines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I know it sounds funny, but <laughs> but the, you know, who would have thought that you could treat chronic subdural hematomas with MMI embolization? Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So when I was training, we always thought that there is a slow, insidious bleeding that goes on and on for several weeks. And, and we know now that's not, but it's, it's surprising to me how long we held to that theory, though we had sophisticated CT scans, which would have picked up small amounts of blood, you know, whether it happened the day after or three days after, but we believe that this was chronically bleeding from some uh, bridging vein rupture. So sometimes we become prisoners to the familiar or uh, ideology that persists. Right. Um... And one, one, probably one of the last questions, and I think you might have uh, touched on that briefly, is you do have a select number of patients in the MMA cohort that had a, a GCS of nine to 12. Uh, what is the, the thought process? I mean, obviously we don't have the scans in the paper here, but what is the thought process in patients who might have a sizable subdural hematoma with a compromised GCS uh, yeah. and treating them primarily with MMA? So, you know, you sh uh, many of them we may have treated with MMA and then we would have gone on to do a burr hole immediately afterwards or okay. some kind of surgical intervention. It's very rarely that we leave a patient uh, with a, you know, with an altered sensorium and just an MMA embolization. And you would, you would consider doing MMA embolization before the subdural? Before, yes, before or after, it doesn't matter. But I think before is sometimes, we've done it even before. I so see. it would be done, you know, you would do the embolization and then just take the patient up for surgery. Sure. All right. I think, uh, Dr. Dasani, I think this would be uh, probably the last question from my end. Uh, if anybody else. Yeah, thank you. I had a in. couple of thoughts. Yeah, I had a thank you for all the, the discussion and the, and the questions and the. Uh, elaboration on the on the paper and the various aspects of technique related to MM embolization. I had uh, two thoughts and it would be uh, great to see what the group thinks about it. Uh, one of them being the role of natural history for chronic subdural hematoma. If we were to serially follow it with CT scans, would we anticipate that the size of the subdural would decrease over time without intervention? So 
you're talking about the natural history, right? Natural history, yes. Yeah, so that's, I think, one of the problems that we face today. Now that there is a less invasive treatment, are people embolizing chronic subdural hematomas that would have resolved on its own? So I think we should be cautious about that. You know, prior to this, there were a very large, there was a large subset of patients that we would not do anything and they would just resolve over time. And I think if they're not symptomatic, if it's a reasonable size and there's no significant midline shift, I think it's very reasonable to, to monitor it with serial CT scans. With Peter Ken, we are trying to organize an NIH study where we would have an arm which would compare middle meningeal artery embolization to observation in patients who are not very symptomatic. Uh, I think that will help us understand whether there is, if, if the study gets funded, whether it will help whether MMA embolization is of any advantage in that group of patients. And the other thought yeah, I, that I had with, with respect, to, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Grossberg. No, no, I was just say I agree with uh, Dr. Thomas that um, it's difficult because we we know there's a high recurrence rate with subdurals, but we also know that natural history is overwhelmingly good. And uh, we also have talked to Dr. Chan about his study, and I think it's really important to be able to kind of figure out um, in a large randomized fashion, you know, which kind of patients benefit and then how much they benefit, you know, how many patients that normally uh, would get better, still get better. And so we can better counsel the patients on the safe treatments. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you, but uh, I think, you know, I've been a neurosurgeon for 20 years and I found that chronic subdural hematoma is one of the most common surgical uh, procedures that I do uh, in terms of open surgery. And the results have not been optimal in the sense that there's a high recurrence rate. And a lot of these patients don't get discharged right away because then they have a little bit of weakness or they're obtended. Then you're putting them on EEG, monitoring them for a few days. So I think overall, I think we've been very pleased with how MMA embolization has worked, especially in the elderly. And I do think that it, uh, it represents a paradigm shift in the way we manage these patients. Great. Thank you. That was a uh, excellent testament to how the majority of centers are now treating subdurals. It's an adjunctive treatment with uh, surgery combined with MMA embolization. Uh, and uh, it's great to hear your thoughts on the natural history and uh, the treatment paradigm shift. My other question uh, was, um, how do we evaluate the success of a middle meningeal embolization procedure for chronic subdural hematoma? Do you think our endpoint should be radiologic resolution of the subdural hematoma or the need for reoperation? I think both are important because I think if the radiological resolution is not uh, substantial, there is a risk of rebleeding into that over time. Um, so I think you have to use both indexes. And I think at least uh, for the trials that we are involved with uh, from the NIH that we have we're in the process of applying, we want, we want both of them to be endpoints. But I think the primary endpoint should be uh, the need for reoperation. The question is how, how frequently do we re-image them, right? And uh, what we are generally seeing is maybe a two week uh, follow-up followed by you know, six weeks and three months, maybe the optimal imaging uh, frequency. 
Thank you. Any other thoughts on that? I would agree with Dr. Thomas that um, looking at reoperation is very important and, um, and you know, the thing the patients care about. Um, and, um, but I, I think these second symptomology things are things that we're going to learn a lot more about as hopefully these trials get funded. Well, thank Great. you very well, much like for allowing me to be part of this uh, podcast. It has been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much to all the panelists for joining. Uh, we had a great uh, discussion. Uh, I would like to invite all of our uh, listeners with the Congress to find the podcast activity in the CNS online education catalog. The podcast is free to all members uh, and is worth 1.5 CME credits. This concludes the CNS Journal Club podcast for the month of September.